So our artist talks continue. Thanks for turning up. Um, we've covered quite a few graduates, and then just recently we had Robert Franken come along. Um, <coughs> according to our student link rep, there was uh, a few students wanted to hear more about some of our staff members and what they get up to with their art and creativity practice. And so today we have Marcel Bayans. 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 I'm getting there. It's very good. Marcel, did TLC find you or did you find TLC? Um, TLC found me. Tell us more. Um, they must have been looking for staff. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody within TLC heard that I was looking for work. And so I got a phone call. The stars alive. Present myself and I did. Mm, great. And you had you heard much or known about TLC much? I, I heard about TLC. Um, in a time that it wasn't at Erskine College. Um, I heard about it. I'd been to a couple of student exhibitions, end of year exhibitions, but that was about it. Great. Yeah. And what about before your time at TLC? What were you doing? Oh, you have a book? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you're here today, I guess. Yeah. Some insight. So I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about my trajectory, how I got here, and then what I am doing here within TLC, and, and, and how for me, what my my practice as an artist is uh, teaching is very much part of it, or facilitation, as I'd like to call it, is very much part of that. So, for sure. So, shall I start? Yeah, go on. Cool. Yeah. So, the first slide you see um, a slide of um, Museum in London, the Tate Modern, and um, I liked it because it had the words art, film, and events in it, because those are three things that I'm really, really interested in or enjoy. Um, so that's what this presentation is a little bit about. And there's one, one panel actually missing, which is architecture, which has been very much part of my life. I always find it interesting, Marcel, just yeah. that whole connection of where people's beginning or, or meeting of TLC starts. Yes, yes, yes. So it was a good timing in my life. Um, so. so I was born in Holland, the Netherlands, tiny little country, about 150 kilometers wide, 300 kilometers long, and I was born smack in the middle. Um, I grew up there, I was raised there, went to school there, went to university there, and it's now that I'm much older, I, I start to realize how much of an influence it actually is in my life. Um, which Since is kind of logical. Pardon? Since stepping back from yeah, it, see more yeah, clearly. I've been away for more than 25 years. Um, so, yeah, and the longer I'm away, the more I understand the influence of that. So, a, a flat land um, created by man-made machines and by man itself. Um, here, a shot of windmills um, in what is now a cultural heritage site, a world heritage site um, that I visited in September. Um, and little did I know that windmills would start to play an important um, role in my, in my life as an, as an immigrant. It's quite interesting. Um, Holland, famous for, you know, um, the golden age of Amsterdam, painters like Rembrandt van Rijn. And I just saw this painting um, a few weeks ago in, in Amsterdam in a re newly reopened museum. And it was interesting to see a lot of people stand in front of the painting and just meditating in front of it. A whole group of people, like 20, 30, just standing there and, and just being silent and just looking at it. And they don't do it with any other painting unless in such a profound way. And, and yeah, this painting is 
has really stamped on the psyche of the nation, I think. And for me, it, it resonates with me. Even though I don't have any favorite artists of, of such, uh, as such or, or architects, but this is a painting that, does, that I do identify with. Why is that? Don't know. There's something historical about it. Well, you'll see it. We'll go on. <laughs> so this is me when I was three and a half years old in a medieval costume because I grew up in a medieval city and this was the 700th anniversary of the town. And growing up in a medieval city has influenced me. Um, as a little kid, as soon as I was allowed to ride my bicycle and go into town after six o'clock when there was no traffic anymore, I would just cycle around the city and go around and around in circles and just absorb it every day of the summer if I could. I just loved it. Well, another thing that influenced me is that I was born in a um, shopkeeper's family. My father was a baker and my mother was the shopkeeper and us kids were the labor in the business, really, from a very early age. We had an ice cream shop, it's a little window on the right, and then uh, this must have been taken in the 60s, I think, um, early 60s. Um, yeah, a very ordinary shop. It still exists today, uh, which is quite remarkable because most bakeries have stopped existing and taken over by chain stores, but this one is still existing. Um, it has influenced me because my dad was an entrepreneur in a, in, a, in a small way and we always had to work and it was about making money and uh, being creative as well. Because being a baker is being creative. Um, I'm also a filmmaker. I made a documentary. This one in 1999 I, was my master's thesis. I did a master's in art education and before that I did a master's in architecture in the Netherlands. And this was in the, in the United States. And This Drawing Looks Intelligent is a documentary about facilitating art for people with intellectual disabilities. And um, I won a small award with this documentary. It was the first documentary I ever made. And it's my encouragement um, for my current documentary that I'm working on, which has been in, in process for 10, 12, 12 years now. Um, but it's a full length feature-length documentary, an experimental documentary. I love filmmaking. What I love about filmmaking or filming is that you get 24 shots per second. And I love often the video stills that come out of my work, and this is one of them. Um, I didn't know I was capturing this. I know what I, what, what I was capturing, when it, not that a shot like this would come out. Very blurry, I love abstract images, and yet there's a little bit of detail of the hands in there. Um, and some, an image that I've used for a little business that I have as well. This is another still of my videos um, of a Dutch windmill, but in a very a less traditional sense, as you the first photo that you see where um, windmills are depicted just as they are, to show them what they are, and this has a more a different quality to me. Um, it looked almost as if light is shining through it, which is not true. It's just a, a default in the camera, really, that, that gave really funny images. And, but I loved it. And it's, it features in my documentary that I'm working on at the moment. I love travel. I think I'm a gypsy at heart. I've traveled quite extensively and lived around the world in different places, different cultures. I go to out-of-the-way places, um, away from touristy places often. Um, and that has influenced my life as well, I realized after a while. 
I like photography as well. I don't regard myself as a photographer, but I take a lot of, particularly since the digital age, um, I take lots of lots of photos here of a uh, Tibetan temple in, in India. I like traveling in many different ways. Um, this is a shot of the River Ganges in India, um, where you cross the river from the city into a sand bank on the opposite side. Two total different worlds can't be further apart, and yet they're only separated by, by a, a river, a relatively narrow river. It's a big river, but it's a small strip, a small distance to actually cross. And you move into a total different world. And that's what I like about travel, that it can transport me from one place to the next. Um, People say, you travel to learn about other cultures. I actually think you travel to learn about your own culture. You learn about the limitations, the conditioning um, that you've been raised with, and they get challenged as you move among other cultures where that conditioning just has no validity. And you need to adapt, and you need to question your own conditioning. Like, does that work? Why does it work? How come it only works in the Netherlands and not in India, for example? Um, and you need to be creative and adaptive to let go of that conditioning, to be able to survive living among other cultures, whether it's for a shorter or longer period of time. It's interesting you say that, Marcel, because one of our other speakers, one of our first speakers, Sandy Rogers, talked about that mm -hmm. when she started tra travelling overseas. She suddenly wanted to, to learn more about New Zealand and just that experience of other culture. Mm -hmm. So it opened something up for her. Yep. Yep, absolutely. One thing that I'm really interested in is, is a, that, that ties the bridges between art, architecture, human beings, well-being, everything, is sacred geometry. And the word sacred here does not necessarily relate to religion. Um, it's about something profound, and that is the harmonies that exist in and underlie many designs, whether we're aware of it or not, including our own DNA is part of that. And um, I've seen a presentation where our DNA or the the ratio in our DNA comes back in things like here as the Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque in, in Istanbul. And that totally fascinates me. What makes geometry sacred? Well, sacred is a, is a latent word, yeah, because it's also used in, in religious contexts. Uh, for me, sacred is about profoundness and a, an understanding of, of life, of making sense of life somehow. Um, and to me, it kind of demonstrates the fact that it, it comes back in everything, um, it, it under, underpins the interconnectedness of everything in life. And that, you could say, could be a, a sacred or religious concept, as they do in Buddhism, for example. Um, but it can just be a, a lay thing. It can be said, oh, we're just connected. Everything is connected, sure. you know, even in a scientific way, well said. Uh, in an energetic way. Yeah. Mm. Uh, this is the inside of the Blue Mosque. I love hanging out in these places, uh, no matter what the... The, the, the nature of the religion is that kind of become the caretakers of these sites um, and I've become really interested in why these sites are there and, and how are they manifested. Um, they're often powerful centers, they're often in, in powerful nature sites or they're in very powerful cities. In this case, Istanbul, which is a very ancient city and has despite many wars and, and um, survived as a city and is still thriving. It's really interesting what gives a place presence. Yes. yes. And like you see, sometimes it's the natural surroundings. I've noticed people are quite drawn to this place and they find because of the surrounding, yep. it just really works with what they're doing creatively. Yeah, because yep. nature processes. Um, trees, forests process oxygen, 
um, nurtures us, nurtures the whole planet really. So yeah, it's, it's not surprising that we're attracted to nature. And hence the next slide by accident. Um, nature, here we see a branch and a tui um, in a tree of a tiny, tiny little plot of land that I um, created in Wellington. Created meaning I subdivided it off when I had to let go of a much bigger house that I didn't need really. And um, I decided to build, oops, that's not in the right order, and I decided to build a house there, a tiny little eco house that got completed this year in, in May. And where my skills of architecture, design, project management, everything kind of came together in a big test. I'm sure you've watched grand design projects and you can see how often it can go totally the wrong way. And um, actually the grand design episodes were my only teachings about how do you project manage and build. Because when I studied architecture, that was not something that was presented to us as a, as a subject to study. Anyway, so we're going to jump around a little bit. Oh no, I just skipped that one slide. So this is the foundation of my house. It's 4.6 by 7.6 meters. It's um, cut into the hillside. It was a five meter deep hole dug by a little digger on a site that only has got walk-on access. Typical Wellington side. <laughs> the design was totally conditioned by the limitations of the site and the regulations that are imposed by the building codes. And this is the house in process. Um, here you see it from the top of the hill. It looks like a one-story house, but in fact it's a two-story house. And the house has become the retaining wall of the site. I had to figure out how to keep the house up, how to keep the hill up, and how to create interesting in a sense of light and openness in a very tiny, tiny space. And when you can't go sideways, one thing that you can do, you can go up, even though that was limited in my case because of sunlight access planes, hence the, the roof angles on both sides that's really staying within the building, building envelope that the building code prescribes. Um, took lots of photos during the build. <laughs> it's fascinating having this documentary of you know where you've come from as a, as a person, an artist, and then especially this, because I mean you don't you said you don't value yourself as a photographer, even though we're seeing some quite strong images. Mm, yes, yes, I do, I do enjoy that, and look for, um, yeah, compositions everywhere, um, and compositions kind of relate back to sacred geometry again, sure. proportions. So this is the house um, as it almost looks finished, um, set in the hillside. It's very small, split level house, um, bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, dining, living on top in the attic. And the living room, the lowest height in the living room is um, three feet or 90 centimeters, and the highest is three and a half meters. So it's a very dynamic space. Um, took lots of photos. This is a, um, a um, waterproof wrap around the windows to protect them from when they were doing all sorts of work on it. And um, little details that I saw and I never expected the building site to look, to, to provide some, so much beauty actually to look at because often they are like a bombshell, you know. And was it always a desire for you to be able to build something of your own? Um, no, no, but it came about, I find that the stock of New Zealand houses pretty bad. Um, I've been renting for a number of years, often got very sick because of the poor living conditions of damp, uh, mould, um, infestations of rodents and stuff like that. So, and I found cold a stressor. I wanted to be warm and comfortable. I know from Europe how this can be easily achieved. 
And so it became a desire once I was able to create a piece of land to actually build my own house one day. And um, it took me four years to get there, but it's, it's done now and I'm absolutely loving it. So this is a shot um, in process. The, um, the floor is already finished and polished, the concrete floor, and uh, the wall still doing. And this is kind of the finished product. So here you can see the height in the living room. Um, where I'm standing, it's 90 centimeters high. I'm, I'm hiding in the corner. And it has these diagonal views to light, to windows, to views. And um, creating a sense of space. I'm borrowing space from outdoors to make the house look bigger than it actually is. The living room is only four by four meters, which if it was a square box, would have looked very claustrophobic. And I borrowed also space from above the kitchen and dining area through the split level area. This is the only piece of um, furniture really in it. It's a balustrade that I wanted to make functional. Um, and it's kind of the key feature in the house. It has translucent panels on the bottom where it lets light into a very dark bathroom and niches to, for storage and integrated art. Um, yeah, and you see through, this is from the dining room up to the, to the living room. Again, the house threw some nice surprises with um, sun coming in at unusual ways, hitting here a wire structure that it forms a, an internal balustrade for the stairs. And I hadn't anticipated that the sun would pour in really deep and right into the kitchen, which is on the west side of the house, but it gets first thing sunlight in the morning. This is really great. This is the dining room finished. And on the top part, in the, the top niche, you see a piece of artwork as a backing. Um, because of the unusual shape of the house and very little square wall space, traditional art, framed art, doesn't work that well in a space like that. So I started thinking about integrated art. And on the top part, on the top shelf there, is a piece of um, a monoscreen print, mixed media work really, that was custom made to fit in that little niche. In the lower one, you see all sorts of family photos stacked um, for the time being, but it's my intention to turn them into one big collage um, with images that are relevant to me, um, as well as my family photos and past photos of myself that I've kept throughout my life and put them all in, in a sequence and make that as a collage and make it as a back background rather than as little pictures that I, that I collected. We saw the natural light playing quite yes. a feature part in your space, and here we see the artificial light creating quite an ambience. Yes, yes. So light to me is extremely important, um, particularly in architecture. Um, diffuse light, um, hidden light so you can't look into it, so it's not going to blind you. Um, here I used LED lighting to actually light the little niches. Um, so instead of being dark, corners of the house they actually become sources of light mm, and therefore create a vocal point and, and extend your vision um, and therefore the, your, your experience of the space and the sense of the space. What created that understanding of light for you? Was it just an ongoing thing or? Uh, yes, but um, when I started architecture that was a really important feature um, and I saw the difference when I came to New Zealand where 25 years ago, often people just had one central light bulb hanging in the living room with no lampshade around it. Just, you know, like it felt like a bus stop. It didn't create ambience. And um, maybe because from an early age I already had, you know, kind of somehow an artistic flair in me and uh, for design and composition and light is very much part of that. Light and darkness and shadow. Sure, which came through your photography as well. 
So I think it's interesting when you develop a skill base with any area, how that can translate or transfer into other yep. areas that you're interested in. Yeah, um, that's very much part of TLC's philosophy, um, creativity being a transferable skill. And um, I'd like to think that I'm a living example of that. I studied architecture but seldom practice as an architect. Um, I, but I use the architectural skills, design skills in all sorts of areas, including running a business, including organising my travels, um, everything really, every aspect of my life. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. So here's a, a more detailed shot of that niche um, with um, kind of a colonnade of a building in the background, um, Indian, Nepali inspired. Um, what do I do at TLC? Um, I came in as a DD tutor, distance delivery tutor, but very quickly moved into working with students with intellectual disabilities. That's something that I have done in the past. Um, that's something I focused on during my uh, master's degree in art education. And this is a cover of a research paper that I did um, a few years back now about developing an, a teaching methodology um, that is inclusive um, at a tertiary level that enables people with intellectual disabilities to, to receive art education. And as far as I know, we're the only one in the world that do that. I haven't found another school in the world that does it in the same way that, that, that we do it here. It's done a lot in community settings, and that's where I got a lot of inspiration from, and that's where I had my training. Um, but um, within a tertiary level, it's not done. Mainly because most art schools require the ability to talk about your work in an academic sense, and we are a practice-based art school. And because there's a linguistic component to most schools, um, they are excluded because it's intellectual impairments often affect the linguistic abilities of a person. And so they just, as a, as a natural consequence, excluded from art education. And here in this school, we have the unique opportunity to, to benefit from their presence within the school because I think they have a lot to offer to an art educational environment. And here you can see why I believe that. You see a series of slides. One is about Mondrian, a Dutch artist who happened to come from the same town that I was born in. And on the right, a, an artist with Down syndrome and intellectual disability. And what you see is their artwork, but also how they have um, taken their art a little bit further and applied it to architectural environments. Um, on the left you see Mondrian's art studio as it was in Paris and um, carefully recreated in a museum in Holland. And on the right you see the studio of um, Hans, um, an artist, and he applied his art to absolutely everything including his shoes. Everything in that room is painted and it's just absolutely quite magical when you walk in there. And to me there's no difference between the two. I know that both of them think deeply about their work. One has been able to articulate it, the other cannot articulate it linguistically. But should he have to? We can just see it and, and take our cues from the visual language that he has created. It just is. Yep. And it's, it's a great screenshot you've got there. It's just to show those artists and how that, cause it's their, their life is their art and it surrounds them. Um, I have been very practical with art and creativity and um, this is a shop in the Netherlands where art by people with intellectual disabilities is taken a lot more seriously than here in New Zealand and there's a whole chain of stores and workshops and studios throughout the country that create products as well as art, fine art, that can be sold. So here art has been applied to furniture, to gifts, 
to plates, cups, sauces, cards, anything you can think of, everything in that store has been touched somehow by people with intellectual disabilities. And this is what's possible. And I often am surprised how any artist is just focusing on fine art, about framing original art and trying to sell that. And I've learned as, as a craftsperson, art person myself, that you can actually make way more money often by reproducing your art in one way uh, or another, uh, applying that to something that people want, um, that they want to be functional as well as beautiful. And uh, for many years I've worked as a, I've had stained glass messes, I've made jewellery, I've made watercolours, I had a market stall, I've sold at craft shows um, throughout the country and um, also set up an art program and run it for five years that was focusing on creating products um, and derivatives of those art products that, that, kept, that could be sold. And, and we did quite well. We didn't do well enough to stay in business uh, because we couldn't get access to government funding. Um, but um, I was able to demonstrate that we were for 45% um, independent, self-sufficient in our income which for a charitable trust was quite, quite uh, remarkable. Um, it's quite fun to do this, I think. Um, and it's a great joy to see people just buying your products and lots of it. And you see creative turnover happening that is really encouraging for the, for the makers as well. That's a very good point. We had a, um, another guest speaker, Melina Martin, who's taken her skills uh, through printmaking and illustration. She's opened up a store in Wellington and she's, she's got a number of graduates and uh, students and other people who are trying to sustain their creativity. And it's just great to see her in the centre of Wellington with all um, New Zealand made um, merchandise, cards and, and her own tea towels. And she's doing, I'd like to say very well, I think she's doing really well and she's just it's building all the time. But she's trying to find an avenue to sustain herself through repetition, reproduction. I believe that creativity can definitely be sustainable and commercially viable. Um, it's not easy in a New Zealand context. We're a relatively small country, a very small market. Um, and retail is, is an extremely difficult sector in New Zealand, I think more so than in other countries. Um, so, yeah, that is you know, a situation that's unique to New Zealand because we're in Ireland at the end of the world. Although with e-commerce, that is say, changing. Yeah, it's opened up, but usually. E-commerce is not the answer to everything. Um, and it's lovely to have a shop, you know. Um, it almost works side by side in this day and age, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's not easy to maintain a shop and keep it afloat. So, and I want to finish up with um, one of my more recent works that I've created um, that started out as a demonstration in class, which kind of ties a lot of things together for me. It's art, design, architecture, um, colour, um, repetition, patterns, geometry um, in an organic way in this sense, but also there is, a, there is a hint to it. In my view, there's a hint to it to the sacred geometry that I've um, experienced around the world uh, while traveling and out there in nature. Um, and this is a panel that's about one meter wide and two meters long. Um, it's built up of small monoscreen prints um, and worked up with um, soft pastel. And this one is now um, hanging in my house. Um, very simply framed, but just a piece of perspex. So. Beautiful. So that's about it. Any questions, feel free to ask. But yeah, I hope this gives a little bit of a um, 
insight into a very complex tra trajectory that I've um, had in my life so far and got me to the point where I'm now. That's great. It's really interesting just to see how you've just channeled your energy into different projects through travel and then that travel come, has come through your architecture as well as yeah, just your experiences. But um, yeah, opening it up to the floor for any questions for Marcel would be a great idea. I'll just have to repeat the question that you asked to myself after you've said it so then those viewers who are listening, whoever I feel would know what you're talking about. Did you kind of brunch into the um, working with the people with the intellectual um, difficulties or was it, um, was it an intention? That you, that it, was, it wasn't in... The question from yeah, ourselves, sorry. did he branch into working with people with impairment or was it something he intended? I was studying in the US and I visited my hometown in Holland just for a visit and I saw a gallery and I really liked the work in the, in the window, like, oh, I wish I could do that. And I walked in and had a look and it proved to be an art studio and gallery for people with intellectual disabilities. And as soon as I saw that, I knew what I wanted to do with my um, master's degree, that I wanted to become a facilitator for fine art for this population. And from that moment forward, I, I dedicated the rest of my study of achieving that. And because there is no role models for that, um, or a study, a place where you can study to do that, as far as I know, there's only one place in the UK at the moment that offers an, uh, an inclusive master's in art education. Um, I just had to invent the wheel, really, and set up projects um, to gain experience and do internships. Some are really good, some are really, really bad and learn from that and take, take the best from that and take that into my current work. Well, for me, it's very inspiring having such a mix at the Learning Connection in my own teaching practice. And there's this, just a piece behind you that was done by um, one of our inclusion students, Daryl. And just to see his own awareness build with technical things, you wondered, would, would they, that be possible? And he's demonstrating light and perspective, and you can just see him in the way it's, he gets very excited. He might not, like you said, linguistically be able to articulate his achievement, but you, you, you sure know how elated he's feeling. And that's enough for me to know what's what, going on. What the most interesting thing for me is, and that's not just in, a, in an art context, but in a social and political context, is that um, through art, they can show their experience of the world, experience of their life, and their viewpoints which otherwise they never get asked or never get an opportunity to demonstrate. So art becomes very much a vehicle in, in a process of democracy and of integration. Uh, and as such, it has played an, a key role in the last, you know, since kind of since the 70s when it was recognized that these guys actually have creative talent and that through that talent, they, they can make a mark in the world as well, not just for themselves, but actually for the benefit of all, all human beings. Beautifully said. Any other questions for Marcel? Um, I'm just fascinated by the way you've integrated so much and you've transferred your skills and, and had a lot. I used to be an architect many years ago, and when I saw your presentation, I knew you were an architect, and that's so it just came right through to me. So, I mean, um, but what made you change? Why did he go from architecture into the, the question for myself is just why did he change from architecture into what he's currently doing? 
I only recently, about in the year 2000, I became aware that I'm a project-based person. And when I studied architecture, that was going to be the career for the rest of my life. It was going to be the one that's going to earn me lots of money. Well, by the time I finished, every architect that came out of the program was unemployed. It's an eight-year study. And by eight years, I was done with architecture. I was actually done with architecture before the eight years were up. But I had to finish it to get a degree out of it. And it was quite a struggle because it didn't fit in with my natural rhythm of who I am. And after that, I took a sabbatical and then I moved to New Zealand. And all I did in New Zealand was doing projects. Whether it was teaching dance, creating a new dance program, creating new art programs, um, doing renovations, all sorts of things. Um, they're all projects. And um, part of that was wanting to study art, which I actually wanted to do as a teenager, but was never allowed to do. I didn't have a portfolio, had lousy art education at, at secondary school, and I thought, there's no way. I wouldn't even dare to ask the question. But I could do architecture, and it had my interest as well. And it's through architecture, I, I through the back door, I learned about design and some um, creative techniques like watercolor painting and stuff like that, and perspective and all these things. Um, so when I was, I think it was 40, when I decided that, yeah, I want to go back to school, and actually what I want to do is go to art school. And I had an opportunity. I managed to get a scholarship. I was really lucky. Um, and, um, yeah, made the switch. And if people wanted to find out more about you, Marcel, do you have a, a website or a blog site that people can visit? I have a series of blogs that are all uh, linked together, and if they Google my name, Marcel Bayens, I'm sure they will find my blogs and they can have a browser around. There's lots of information there. Excellent. I think when we post the podcast, we'll probably have a few links there too. So That's fine, yeah. So I'm going to comment to my yeah. question. Um, the exhibition a couple of terms ago where, where you're, you've taken over that room, all mm -hmm. beautiful, colourful things. Um, people, what I was kind of getting the impression of, people were enjoying the rest of the exhibition. When they went in that room, it was a real wow factor room. And I think everyone who I knew who went to it, that was their favourite room. And they just got so much from it. Why do you think it was? It was vibrant, it was alive, maybe it was spontaneous, it was very colourful. One thing that I set up with that exhibition and Louise here helped me greatly with that is to actually transform the space. Because it was an ordinary classroom, <clears throat> with all the markings on the floor and, you know, bits of carpet here and there. And that really took away the focus of what I wanted to show. And so I covered the whole room in brown paper to kind of clean, create a clean canvas um, for where to work, which is only process work. It was not finished work necessarily. It was not presented work. It was just, you know, unframed work and a, and a rough collection of that um, to have an impact on the viewer. So it became an architectural installation. And because it was segregated from the rest of the, the exhibition, um, it, it, it took on its own energy. And the energy from the works started to fill the energy from the room. And it was really interesting to observe everybody who would come into the room and take the corner and go, go wow, and be affected by the works. And the first time I experienced that was in a huge exhibition we put together in Chicago at the Cultural Center where we had three massive rooms with, with double, triple heights. That was totally transformed in all sorts of ways by their artwork with installations, with wallpapers they created, with framed pictures, um, video installations, all sorts. Um, and people would come again and again and again and just, and just linger. 
and the exhibition was called You're in My Space. And that's actually what it was. And so this was a kind of, kind of a miniature version of that. Um, so people get a, an experience of what it's like to walk into a space that's kind of, kind of created by people that we normally don't see any cultural expressions from. Thank you. Thanks heaps, Marcel, for coming in and just sharing your insights to who you are and what you do here at TLC. My pleasure. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody.